Welcome to The Changing World of Work, a podcast series that gives you access to some of the best business minds from around the world. My name is Claire Luby from Irish Times Training. In collaboration with Kevin Empey, founder of Work Matters, we are bringing you conversations with international guests whose cutting-edge insights will disrupt your thinking and make you reflect on today's ever-evolving world of work. Welcome to this episode of the Changing World of Work podcast, brought to you by Irish Times Training. I am your host, Kevin Empey. Kayan Krippendorf is recognised as one of the world's most influential thought leaders and authors in the areas of innovation and business strategy. Global Gurus ranks him in the top 20 most influential management thought leaders globally. Thinkers 50 ranked him as one of the top eight global innovation thought leaders. And Thinkers 360 ranks him as the number one innovation thought leader in the world. He's author of five books, uh, most recently Driving Innovation from Within, a guide for internal entrepreneurs. He is the founder of the Outthinker Strategy Network, a global peer network of senior executives focused on staying ahead of the pace of disruption. And he is also the host of the very popular Outthinkers podcast. Kyan's work is all about helping business leaders develop the skills needed not only to survive, but thrive in a fast-paced, digital and disruptive future. His work demonstrates that, contrary to common belief, large organisations can be innovative and agile. Indeed, they are the source of 70% of society's most transformative innovations. Kyan Krippendorf, welcome. So Kyan, I'm I'm curious about uh, about your own background and what originally got you interested in the world of work and that's led to to what you're doing today. Your your mother's from Bangladesh, I believe, and your father from Germany. So that must have given you a an international outlook from from quite early on. Yeah, yeah, I, I like to think so. Um, you know, in the United States, we can sometimes be uh, kind of myopic in our in our perspectives, but I, <laughs> I've gotten to live in in Africa and uh, Asia and Europe and Latin America and worked in those places. So I, I, I think maybe I'd like to think that I appreciate the global perspective mm-hmm. as well. Uh, what about your original, you know, interest in, in the world of you know, business and work, what sort of piqued your interest and, you know, how did that sort of evolve for you, you know, in terms of what you're doing today? Yeah, I think my interest began in strategy and actually began when I was I was living in the Dominican Republic in the Caribbean and I was flying there and I found a book actually an ancient a book of the ancient Chinese stratagems <laughs> called the 36 stratagems and at the time I was working and living in a place I didn't know very many people so I had a lot of time on my hands. So I think that's something that's interesting <laughs> about like, you know, work environments that allow innovation have this extra time to do nothing. Right. And so I had nothing to do. So I would, on the weekends, I'd go to my office and um, I started collecting cases and lining them up against these 36 stratagems that eventually uh, eight years later became a book. (laughs) And, uh, and then I wrote another book and I wrote another book and another book and another book. And um, from that uh, interest in strategy, it led to how do people, create strategies and mm-hmm. how do groups of people create strategies? What's the language by which people can come up with very innovative ideas? And my father uh, was uh, kind of the creator of a field called content analysis, which is where it takes language and, and codes it into data that allows you to analyze it. So I kind of like the perspective I came from. So I'd say, say it's from 
what what are the patterns of conversation that lead to new ideas is mm-hmm. probably where I would say my passion and research sits. You've evolved that obviously in terms of then your your work in strategy and innovation and and you know, but I get really get a sense, you know, particularly from your podcast and and indeed of course your strategy network as well, that ultimately then you're getting into the human dimension of this too, yeah. you know, from a leadership, you know, behavioral perspective that, you know, can have the best strategy and the best innovation in the world, but it's really about how organizations are working together. You know, organizations are but groups of individuals, yes. right? And they're influenced around how they're led and what's prioritized. So you really seem to combine that sort of strategic innovation point with yeah. with, with people at work as well. Yeah. Uh, absolutely. I think because that's where the transition happens, um, just at a very high conceptual level, the physical reality that we create as humans together, um, if it's intentionally created, first comes out of language. We get together and we discuss a possibility or a vision or a ideal or a big, hairy, audacious goal or whatever it is that that language then then translates into what options we see to pursue that, which then translates into the actions that we take, right? So it is the strategies, kind of the language side that then informs how humans um, collaborate together. Mm-hmm. So it always leads back to to work. And, and so my podcast is about introducing concepts from thought leaders who create new concepts. You know, like mm-hmm. before 1980, there was no term of competitive advantage. Um, before 1960, there wasn't really a concept of internal versus external, like when you did strategy. Sort of like there's an external opportunity and any organization could pursue that um that opportunity uh but then the idea of internal versus external capabilities gets introduced mm. right and now internal capabilities are now say hey maybe we are the right oper- right person for that opportunity and that organization is not or that organization is a better fit for that opportunity than we are which then gets into capabilities and gets into culture, right? But until mm-hmm. you have that distinction of internal and external factors, you don't have a need to understand how your yeah. culture is different and how your capabilities are different. Yeah, yeah. And uh, that sense of evolution, and as you say, quite rightly, we, we, we assume that the world is of work and, and business models that we operate in have always been there, but yet, you know, that, that's patently not true. And I, I, so I, I guess I'm, I'm interested in your views about where we are now generally in the world of work you know are we does, does it feel like we're at a, a big inflection point out there you know with all these converging things that are going on or do you think well no actually this is just a continuum of the innovation process and the strategic process or what's different about what we're going through and living through now in, in your view if anything i guess you could think of it almost like a pendulum moving in space so there's a pendulum moving back and forth and there is a constant push and pull between supply and demand of labor. Mm. And as we're recording this right now, the pendulum is on the side of of labor. Like there's labor shortage. And so employees have a lot of power, bargaining power, which then leads us to employees be able to do more remote work, have more flexibility in whether they do their work and how they do their work and things like that. Because companies are having trouble hiring enough yeah. people, right? And that's going to, and that pendulum is going to swing back, right? But I think that the center point of that pendulum is moving if we take a longer view. And I think what's changing is the 
technologies by which we can organize human behavior are resulting in us being able to organize humans more efficiently in new ways. And kind of the hierarchical model was an efficient model and, and is an efficient model in certain situations. Um, but if we look at the theory of a firm, why does a firm exist, right? It's when the transaction costs of organizing in a firm context is more efficient than in an external market context, you know? But what's happening is that technologies that allow you to hire workers, to find someone to fix your faucet, to find someone to drive you from one part to another, right? It is making it efficient for us to identify, to hire, to work with, and then monitor the results of having worked with that person. And we don't need a contract, right? So the marketplace is now becoming more competitive. Now, a company is never only a hierarchy. A, a you know, we Inside that hierarchy, you do see an internal marketplace. You do see internal communities. You do see um, internal ecosystems. Uh, you do see internal democracies. There are different forms by which people can organize themselves. And some of those forms, particularly the marketplace, is becoming more competitive. So we're seeing uh, a traditional hierarchical model giving way yeah. to a marketplace model, a more, and, flex, but an internal marketplace. Yeah. And that internal marketplace in terms where skills become actually more the, the language rather than jobs, right? That's you, you hear about that so much now that it's the skills that need, because we've yeah. got technology or we've got other sourcing options, labor sourcing options to do other parts of a job, but, but particular skills is really what we're trying to mine for and understand in that marketplace. Yeah. So there's a lot of... Uh, change it feels like you're saying there's something about that 20th century business model that has sort of served us well i guess is giving way to something more more appropriate to the 21st century realities and possibilities that we've got around you know product and innovation and and market as it were and yeah and yeah, i think so yeah. yeah i think so and i think it's not it's not entirely new you know before the 1920s there was no job people mm. didn't have jobs mm. right you were a farmer and you also fixed watches and you also made leather and you just found a way to make it work. You know, and then before then, most people were, you know, what we would now call gig workers. The artisans. Right. And the job doesn't yeah. get introduced until the 1920s and then 1950. By 1950s, everyone has a job. <laughs> right. Mm. Um, so it's not like um, we're moving into uncharted territory i think it's just uh the, the form by which we can do that now i think is 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 it's different that we can have we can, change, we can we can now have organizations that bring in the marketplace um model model yeah. um, but 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 yeah. it's interesting i think it does like the skills that we need because uh, well this is something i haven't thought fully about you probably have thought about it more is if you look at some industries the the most like commonly cited one would be movies. You know, if you're producing a movie, you can easily pull together an organization quickly. You can get your director, you get your writer, you get your screenwriter. They all know what jobs to do. You can configure, you can produce the movie, then you dismantle and they can form a new organization. Yeah, exactly. There's something about the friction right now of um, 
being able to jump into a team and be able to immediately be productive and That's right. have people know yeah. how to work together. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So taking that, that sort of from an internal, you talk so much about internal sort of entrepreneurialism and being able to take some of that uh, agility and flexibility that you, you, you cite there with a the movie example and tr trying to adopt that mindset and even that sort of structure internally. And um, it's interesting, you know, that I guess one thing, I pick up with you too is the, is the paradox at the moment. So you talk about you know the, the the skills and availability and that's changing and shifting the marketplace, the opportunity that's out there for labor on the labor side. Then speaking of the movie business, you're in Florida, right? So mm -hmm. cr across the continent in the West Coast is big issue as we're recording on on the writers the writers strike in Hollywood, yep. and, you know, and, and genuine strike, genuine concern, absolutely, and and genuine concern about the whole, you know, the, the computer simulation, the the AI, CGT, literally replacing the writing kind of process, and indeed the all the the stage actors and and, and everything else that that goes yeah. along. So, but but meanwhile, the movie stars, you know, that nothing's changing there. But for the general population, the general labor, huge disruption in in that industry. No, but it is, it is changing for the movie stars as well, right? Mm. Like if you were to create an avatar that is built from uh, imagery from, I don't know, Sylvester Stallone and Arnold Schwarzenegger, right? And this AI creates an avatar character that can act and you could feed it scripts, you know, but it's somehow like informed by the likeness of those actors, right? Do those actors have a right to their likeness. And so there are some lines that are now yeah, gray. I know. And, I know. And, and, yeah. and we need to so so, yeah. so even I think for for the for the actors. Yeah. So um, the uh, that, so CGI, the extras and then the writing process, and as you say, even the stars, now we can age them and de-age them right. and all can do all that yeah. stuff. So yeah. yeah. So your your take then in terms of world of work, it feels like a lot of disruption of flexibility optionality around yes. how and where work gets done, but ultimately still needs to serve the innovation process. In other words, what are we trying to do, right? So, yeah. 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 The, yeah. The and and the question is, does, does, yeah, does it, does it create more, um, yeah, does it create more innovation or decrease innovation, this mm. flexibility mm. of work, uh, being able to work wherever, whenever. I think that um, you, you can track a conversation. Let's say, let's say there are five types of conversations we could be having. We could be having conversations about things we should stop doing. We could be having conversations about protecting things that we're doing. We could mm -hmm. have conversations about things that we've started that are really taking off. We could have be having conversations about things that haven't yet taken off, but we're working on them. And we could be having conversations about possibilities of things that we may or may not do. And I think that fifth one, the, the conversation of things that we may or may not do, those are the kind of the water cooler conversations. Those are like the, hey, uh, did you know? Did you hear about you know this information? I wonder if, imagine yeah. if, right? Those imagine if conversations, and I think the current like mode of remote working makes it more difficult to have those conversations because yeah. yeah. often we get together in a Zoom, we've got fifty five minutes, we've got an agenda. And um, you, we don't have that informal yeah. conversations. You yeah. can't lean over to the person next to you, or uh, you know, you know, during a break, you know, just talk to people about things that without an agenda. You know, yeah. like that's dangerous um, because that that can stem off the flow of innovation. Do you have a concern? Do you have a concern about you know you've been a 
a student and a, you know an observer and an expert on the innovation process now for for so long do you do you have a concern about the the shift to to hybrid working remote working for for certain aspects of the innovation process because i i know there's some really good research doing and breaking down the innovation process and trying to isolate aspects of innovation that actually are perfectly achievable and doable in a remote distributed setting but maybe there's points of the innovation process uh, that that actually really need us working together in person to have that that chemistry uh, uh, and that human factor together. Yeah, yeah, so much, right? There's like, um, do we need to have trust with each other in order mm, to exactly, be yeah. free to innovate? And yeah. can you build trust remotely? And how long does that take? Definitely, you know, we we organize <clears throat> uh, peer networks of executives, strategists, and entrepreneurs. <clears throat> and when when COVID hit, we did everything virtually. And um, there was a lack of real human connection. And then as we were able to then put back in in-person sessions, then you can ramp up the ramp up trust um, more quickly. Yeah, yeah. So I think that gets hurt. I think that like there's you have physical and digital interaction. If you're if you're innovating on something physical, obviously being there together helps. Um, digitally, mess, maybe less so. Um, but but I do think the issue that I was talking about earlier, I think that can be addressed. I think that we can start adopting norms like when you have your zoom call first to spend the first 10 minutes just talking about nothing yeah creating yeah. space to just basically yeah. we didn't make free fall. Like be explicit yeah yeah exactly yeah yeah, yeah. free form look even in what you've just been saying so this sort of change that we're seeing um the whole area of adaptiveness agility flexibility people will use different words but it's such a constant theme and requirement that you hear about in in this debate and you know i know this is a field that you really help uh, leaders with and organizations i'm just interested in your your thoughts on the concept of of agility the 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 uh, what it looks like what it means for you and and you know how how you see it you know embedded how we how we somehow embedded from a a, a well intended you know in, an intention a good intention to 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 an operational reality what's your take on on that agility challenge as it were yeah i think um I think the agility has always been um, the defining uh, factor of uh, an organization that survives. Uh, the mm -hmm. oldest company in the Americas is a Canadian company, and um, you know, at the very beginning, they they sort of saw. I think they they exported fur, and they realized that there was a shift happening in how fur was exported, and they were able to adapt quickly. So I think it's always been about adapting quickly. When I think about agility, I, I really like this model from a fighter pilot hmm. named John Boyd. And he introduced the OODA loop, observe, orient, decide, and act. That's the basis for what we now call lean and agile and scrum. Hmm. But you observe the environment, you orient yourself to hmm. what's happening, you make a decision, you act on that decision, then you observe the result of your decision. And if you can shorten that loop, if you can get inside your competitor's OODA loop, then you are cycling faster than them. Mm. And so um, that's always, it's agility's always been uh, mm. central. The the issue is that our loops have to get shorter now mm. because we have an acceleration of technology adoption. We have these systems that are becoming chaotic and those systems are interacting. We have our political system, we have our economic system, we have our social system. And now those things, they're more interdependencies. And so the chaos uncertainty of them are mm. feeding off each other mm. and so mm. we're just living in a very in a much more rapid environment i also think that we're evolving from 
industries towards larger ecosystems. And as it becomes easier for us to coordinate with with uh, partners, like we don't have to just sell the we don't have to just sell the car. We can sell the car with services and technology, and yeah. you know. Uh, so what we'll end up with are a reconfiguration of industries into ecosystems, yeah. and so all of these changes mean that we need to be cycling through our OODA loop more rapidly. Yeah. So the need for agility or the payoff of agility is higher now than before. It also feels that it needs to be more like a, a habit, so more of a, a, a default, because I suppose, isn't there a case too that you've got, there's a sort of paradox at play here, because there's also, you know, compliance and the need for efficiencies, the need for, to be able to roll out, you know, globally, you know, scale requires efficiency and requires rigid, you know, process and, you know, very clear process. So it, you know, and, and, it really does feel sometimes that people are struggling with this agility. You know, you can't be just doing those loops all day, every day, right? You've got to execute right. as well. So we've got this tension between, I don't know, being stable and efficient yeah. and, and being flexible and, and and so on. And I'm just, you know, wondering how do you, how do you help with that in terms of organizations? What's your sense of, of how to blend that agility or to embed that agility mindset and operation system into, you know, an insurance company, you know, or, or somewhere where that is that is dealing with some of these paradoxes that doesn't have the kind of luxury of of continuously responding to, you know, the outside world and creating product really quickly online and, and whatever else. So they're trying to to get that balance. What's what's your thought? Because I'm sure, yeah. Yeah, I think the e the easy answer, but it only works for the dichotomy of wanting agility and not wanting agility on the product side is to have um, an ambidextrous organization. Mm -hmm. Mike Tushman at Harvard introduced this concept that you mm -hmm. have one part of the organization that is manning the ship and, mm -hmm. and, you know, and managing the efficiency mm -hmm. business. And then you have the explorer side, um, which is more experimenting, agile, rapid, um, mm -hmm. and then, uh, you know, reaction. And then you have a layer on top of, of, of leaders who are able to shift their mindset between those two, but we don't ask the bulk of the organization to, um, to do that. I think that if we take a external perspective, you are an organization that's looking to produce products that serve customer needs. It's easy to separate them. Mm -hmm. However, you know, there's one defense contractor that I've gotten to work with and they build stuff that if you have less than a 99% um you know uh assurance rate if you have more than a 1% failure rate could have major consequences right these are missiles uh and 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 jet planes and things so there's parts of the business where they need to have a checklist and have people just following the checklist and not skipping anything and not adding anything and certainly you need that but then if that's a culturally embedded habit right then when you're doing human resources or onboarding of new employees, you come up with a really detailed list and you do not diverge from that list. But you don't need that for onboarding. You need that for rocket building, but not for onboarding. So there is a cultural like dilemma of mm. separating, mm. being able to reconcile that wanting to be consistent versus wanting to experiment. Yeah. Uh, and so I think that our cultural values need to have like change that. so that yeah. yeah 
Yeah. So they can, you can do both. Yeah. Yeah. That ambidextrous nature again, you mentioned. And I remember doing some, some research actually with, was, it was with an insurance company and, and the CEO was saying, look, actually, Kevin, there's 90% of this organization I don't want to be, you know, going through those loops and, and reinventing things. It is a standard process. Our margins are wafer thin, you know, our processes, our compliance agenda, et cetera. But that other 10%, I do really need them to be absolutely scanning and responding and sensing what's going on and how we shift uh, in the market with it and in, make linkages with other partners that you're talking about outside, you know, our traditional business model. But what was an interesting thing you said, though, even for those folks who are doing those standard processes, I need them to have that agile mindset, though, because I need them to realize that if that checklist, if there's a problem on step four or step five, I need them to be able to feel safe to raise their hand and say, I think there's a different way here, you know. So it was a nice, it was a nice, I think he had a, a good take on that cultural uh, dilemma in terms of how that actually, yes, to be honest and open about parts of the organization, we need to be absolutely efficient, but still to be open, I think was the real key word, to be open to possibilities, to open to to yes. options. But, yes, yes, absolutely. So yeah, you need that, you know, that 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 psychological safety mm. that Amy Edmondson talks about. Um, and you, I think you also need um, a strong mission or a burning platform or both that motivates us to look for new ways, you know, to move us away from, oh, the, what we're doing is okay. Yeah. Yeah. It works. You know, we need to be able to say there, there's, there's gotta be a better, there's gotta be a way you do see, like, if you look at the path, the evolution of an organization and you look at internal agility, they start off very agile, right? They're, mm -hmm. um, they're startups, they're disruptors, they're risk-taking, then they figure out the business model, and then it becomes more about repeating the business model. So you introduce bureaucracy, you start defining tasks more narrowly, you tightly monitor those that performance of those tasks, and you become risk averse because what you have works. A diversion from what works can be risky. But if an organization can continue to scale, then we start being able to be agile again, but on a different basis. Uh, like, for example, when you have scale, you can take ideas and you can scale them more quickly. You have multiple capabilities under one roof uh, that you can combine. You have uh, resources to invest in innovation. But I think what's really interesting is that you can now diversify your risks. You, if you, uh, I think it's um, Jeff Bezos said, if you have one in 10 chance of 100 times payoff, you got to take that bet every time, but you got to be ready to lose nine times out of 10. So if we can get our heads around losing nine times out of 10 or looking at the our, our innovation efforts as a portfolio, what's the overall risk of these 10 bets oh we got a 10 times payoff yeah. in those 10 bets and not measure them by the individual attempts to to do something new right we can we, we can solve that now a large organization can actually out innovate a small organization because they can diversify their bets and then they can scale isn't that it so yeah. so they have that if they build that innovative culture and mindset and as you say set up those 10 you know experiments for success etc but then they're able, that one or two that really really work then they have this other uh, capability which is to to bring that to to market quickly and scale and, that's, and, and, yeah. and, and and there's research there's research that shows 
but we know what it is that there's research that shows a correlation between cultural values and higher level, lower levels of innovation. Mm. And there's really four values that are, that, that we can see correlate. It's not my research. This is looking at mm. external research. Uh, and, and some of them are fairly, you know, obvious, but, um, but not easy to implement. The first is, do you encourage innovative thinking, new ideas? So that gets celebrated, right? Do the people who come up with new ideas, even if they fail, are they um, admired? The, another one that I find is a big barrier is autonomy or proactivity. Are your people allowed to take action without asking for permission? Is that encouraged? Um, another one is an, a market awareness do they go out into the world? Do they go to conferences? Do they talk to customers? Do they know what competitors are doing? Um, that you know that 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 kind of external perspective, and then the risk taking, how they relate to the risk taking, and do you encourage risk taking? And it's not so much risk taking for risk taking purpose, but it's more about creating an asymmetry of risk. It's it's not like um, risk, not as a trade off, mm. as much as it is creating downside protection. Mm, mm. So you create situations where if we fail, the losses are low, but if we succeed, the losses are, the, the gains are high, you know, risk asymmetry. You know, we covered such a lot there in terms of, you know, the values, which I think is a really powerful piece because that really helps to get that uh, congruence between, say, the culture, the day-to-day -day culture and decision-making from everybody, you know, the whole organization right up to the top and so on. But if, if you were just advising, you know, a business leader or HR leader who, who who maybe are really reflecting now and saying, okay, you know, we're, we, we need to shift our agility quotient. <laughs> we need to go from where we are to just be a more adaptive organization for the future. We've got hybrid working going on. We've got the speed of change. We've got all this uncertainty, which seems to be increasing, so on. Um, we've got opportunities too in terms of these ecosystems that you're talking about. So if we're trying to shift from where we are to to a more adaptive model with the type of ingredients you've been talking about, what what's the advice you give to, to where do they start, you know, in terms of just getting traction on that journey? Because people I talk to on this issue, they kind of go, oh, it's, it feels so multifaceted because it covers everything from strategy, innovation, culture, operating model. Um, just interested in your thoughts about what your one or two key pieces of advice are for people. Yeah, I'm struggling with uh, which way to frame my response here. Uh, because I think that you can look at it at least in three mm. different ways. One is you can look at the mindsets, behaviors of leaders and what needs to change to be a more agile entrepreneurial leader. You could look at it from the journey of the employee and what are the barriers that that employee mm. faces and how can you remove those barriers? And you could also look at it at the organizational design. Mm. And there are four key things that you can do now to start uh, addressing organizational design. So different different pathways, different entry points into the discussion then really, isn't it? You know, so, Yeah, different yeah. ways of looking at the problem, yeah. right? You yeah. could, yeah, yeah, exactly. And it's, um, it's, in, it's interesting you pick out the employee experience too, because I've often thought that, you know, the, the HR folks, you know, do have such an influence here over the agility journey, you know, because yeah. they control or influence so many of the, Enablers yep. or enablers yes. of agility, you know, from recruitment to talent to culture communications and so ways of working and so on. Um, yeah. 
So you, as you say, you can take that lens if you want. Yeah. And you, yeah. But then look at it. Yeah. yeah. If you take like an employee centric view and we break down the journey, um, my research shows or says that there's basically seven steps in that journey. The first is the employee suddenly gets the intent to innovate. So you got to look at what might be stopping intent. Then the employee understands what the company needs. So we need to simplify our strategies so that everyone understands the strategy. So they find a need that they're excited about. Then they create options. They generate lots of ideas. So we need to encourage people to come up with the whole portfolios of ideas, not one or two ideas. Then those ideas are going to be inconsistent with a business model. So the employee finds a way to engineer the business model around the idea so that it creates less business model conflict. Having done that, then the employee has to run an experiment. They have to take some action on the idea. And often organizations ask us to prove the idea before we're allowed to take action, but they need to be able to take action on the idea in order to prove it. Mm -hmm. Then they need to come up with a team to take that action. And the issue is that the team doesn't all, all report to the same boss. And so mm. we need to collaborate across silos. Mm. And then they face the, uh, after they've taken that action, they've done the experiment. Ooh, there's potential here. Now they need to land that challenge into the organization and they face the political challenge. And we need people to view the political challenge as part of the problem solving process. Not e not something that shouldn't be there, and not even a necessary evil, but actually like an enjoyable part of the of the of of the innovation process. So, in my interviews, about 150 internal innovators. Those are the seven steps on the journey. The, that, employee, um, the em employees' journey. The sort of day to day, I feel like experience. But that obviously, then there's this overlap. Then with that, in terms of the leadership agenda, which you 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 also picked out there, which was that leadership, that cultural piece that leaders are allowing that space and that right. Uh, right. you know risk tolerance and you know space to have those conversations you're talking about so it's it's not like a, a linear you know sequential thing it's these these, yeah. these moving parts and then the organization has to be set up in a design perspective to to be able to accommodate this right so right there's a blockage there's a bottleneck in one or more of those seven and which is the one that has the biggest bottleneck if you it's like a river and there's seven dams and um if you're not getting water out of the other side then there's mm. one or more of the dams that which which are the ones that would be best to open the most you know to 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 release the flow of ideas so it feels like you know i think what you're saying is look you can scan if you like your 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 where you are in terms of your uh, your your future readiness, your agility, uh, looking across those kind of spheres. It's something we can break down because I just get a sense sometimes that that whole agility thing is very opaque to people. It's very like, what is it? You know, how do you get your hands on it? You know, how do you actually, yeah. you know, operate it, analyze it, ex and execute it? So certainly those lenses yeah. you're talking about would help. And, and back to your first, the first point that we had at the beginning of the conversation mm. is it's not necessarily that, all areas of your organization, do you want agility? Mm -hmm. Agility can, uh, in some areas, will increase success. Agility in other areas, you know, risk decreasing success. Again, building the rocket ship that you've already built a hundred times and that cannot fail, right? Um, you don't, so the first step is to look at the organization and see what areas do we want more agility in. And then I think doing the assessment that you're saying and saying, which of these barriers are preventing uh, are, are limiting our agility and then diagnosing them and addressing 
So, Kyan, just coming towards the end, I'm just thinking about what your thoughts are and people need to really engage with your work, um, you know, through that network, at least through your podcast and so on to kind of really explore some of these topics that we've just been able to touch on today. But just interested in terms of your thoughts on next, where, where, where we're going next. Is it, is it uh, where do you see the world of work going next? Do you think it's a continuation of the type of dynamics you were talking about earlier, this idea of the marketplace, this flexibility? Any, what are your thoughts? So I suppose wh why that's kind of valuable to us is just in terms of making decisions today, strategic decisions around values, around culture, around organization design. It's kind of helpful to know, well, where's the puck going, you know, as, yeah. as Greg C might have said. So What's your thoughts on where we're where we're heading? Well, I, I, I'm biased because, like, my mission in life is that is people love what they do, and I think that people can love what they do more easily if we have more open organizations. So I'm on a mission to open organizations, and so I can show very strong correlations between more open organizational structures and your ability to recruit and retain top talent and your financial performance. Hmm. So. That's where I start, right? Okay. That's my hypothesis, but I proved the hypothesis, uh, and now I'm I'm advocating for it. But I, I do believe that we are um, there are technological and therefore and driving economical reason economic reasons for why we're going to see organizations evolve evolve from centrally planned economies mm. where one boss decides who does what work, how much we sell, you know, where resources go. We know that doesn't work in external macro economies, yet we control, we hold that mindset with our internal economies. And I think we're going to see um, an opening up. And if you look at all those seven barriers that, that I described over, um, you know, earlier, what I think we're going to see, we're not going to treat employees like employees are going to be entrepreneurs. We're no longer going to have complex strategies, but simple statements of purpose. We're no longer going to have one business model, but multiple business models. We're no longer going to ask people to prove stuff to do it. We're going to let them experiment. We're no longer going to have us working in silos, but start breaking down into small multifunctional teams. And ultimately the uh, enterprise emerges from a central planning to a platform where people can come and go and do great work and have an impact, yeah. you know? Yeah. That's where really, I think we can. That really does feel like the, the direction of travel, doesn't it? And you know, people say, well, you know, you can't predict the future. Well, actually you can really in some way. We know it's going to be more of the type of system that you've just talked about than the traditional central control. So, so if we're betting, yeah. you know, there's a, there's a, it's a fair bet that we are moving in that exact direction you're taking. So, Therefore, you know, from a leadership perspective, I guess it's a case of needing to start to embrace that and and really kind of get a sense of where 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 we're at on there. I mean, if you have a, yep. if you have one word of advice for, for for leaders, you know, who are themselves, you know, thinking about their own personal leadership on this, what what would you what would you say to them? Where to st where to start? I think the easiest place to start that will have the most impact is create a space for your people to share impossible ideas, ideas that are not fully vetted out. And when you hear an idea and you can come up with 10 reasons why it won't work, regulations won't allow it, the technology doesn't exist, no one's done it before, all of those reasons, right? Just say, just create 
time in the agenda, mm. in your conversations, in the hallways to allow people to explore impossible ideas. Because that's the source, right? That's the mm. the, the beginning of mm. the river mm. of mm. agility. Mm. You know? I like it, Kyan. Well, listen, listen, we're just up to the end, just really you know, to thank you so much for your time today. Um, just in, in your own words, just give a sense of maybe what your your focus is right now and how you'd like people to engage with you in any way they can contact you. How, what, what's your advice? Well, um, we've just launched our sister network to our strategy network. Mm -hmm. We call it the Entrepreneurs Network. Mm -hmm. And we are building a global community of entrepreneurs, people working inside mm -hmm. of large established companies that want to make a difference. And so that's one thing I would love if any listeners recognize themselves in that to reach out to us on outthinker.com and learn about us and let us talk to you about this uh, this this community that we're building. Because I really do think it's going to be entrepreneurs in large established companies that are going to come up with the innovations that are going to shape the future and impact humanity. And so that's that's what that's the main thing that, yeah, that we're up yeah. to. Great stuff that peer to peer, which I really, really yes. acknowledge too. It's 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 fantastic. So, Kyan Krippendorf, thank you. No, oh, thank you. Thanks for having me. It's great seeing you. Thanks for listening to the Changing World of Work podcast. Join us next time as we speak to experts about the trends, innovations, and developments affecting workers and our workplaces.